We are going to be making these uh, recordings available, but uh, I'm really glad to have you here this evening. Um, we're going to turn our attention uh, at the very beginning to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to read that uh, for us uh, this evening. And uh, let it kind of launch us into something. We're not going to exposit this text in particular, but I'm going to make a, uh, a quick point and then launch, uh, launch into a few things uh, from here. So this... Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says this, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasingly, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is uh, a pretty epic passage. and it does beg a question, because when we read that, and I've included it on the uh, printout here, uh, to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, of course, we all know exactly what that means. No need for additional kind of explanation there. Uh, but of course, we, we do need a little bit of explanation. Uh, specifically in the Protestant church, we need quite a lot of explanation, because uh, we're not really tuned into using words like virtue to describe the types of people that Jesus is making us into. Uh, it happens that the word virtue, um, uh, you know, cardinal virtues, which we'll be talking about here in a moment, have been used uh, in the Catholic church, uh, in uh, the ancient church, in Anglican churches for uh, millennia and uh, taught for centuries, but uh, somewhere in just the dust of the Reformation, the Protestant churches to, uh, forgot to bring this kind of ancient knowledge and wisdom with us. And so uh, what my goal is uh, over the next four weeks is to, uh, in some ways, dust that off and for us to be uh, reproved in it, to grow in it. So I want to start off uh, simply by uh, by defining this word, uh, virtue. If we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, it helps us to know what it is. So virtue, as we can tell right there, is the habitual and firm disposition to do the good. Uh, There are lots of uh, catechisms that include a good definition for uh, what virtue is, but this is one of the best. It's the habitual, that means the habit. It's the regular uh, meeting out of one's faith in daily life. It's a habit, but it's not a flimsy one. It's not a flabby one. It's not one that is plastic or moldable. It's one that's firm in its disposition to actually accomplish something, and that is to do the good. Now, I don't know of anybody, I haven't had the conversation with everyone, but I don't know anybody that would say that uh, doing good is a bad thing or certainly not an aim in their life. All of us want at some level to be good and to do good, to live the good life. Uh, In fact, quite a lot of us find uh, lots of resources that might help us along that way, Uh, self-help resources, uh, blogs that might make you better in certain ways, or uh, trying to find certain things that are added into a good life. But virtue is the actual habit of it. It's the firm habit of it. It's a disposition in your life to actually do and accomplish the good. The word cardinal is different than that. It's a descriptor. It's an adjective. It means hinge. 
Uh, cardinal, uh, in its ancient Latin form, meant uh, the hinge of something. So cardinal virtues are the dispositional habits on which the good life hinges. So if you want to live a good life, uh, you know, the cardinal virtues would really beckon you to come and to learn how to do that good life and really say that all of it really pivots on, it hangs on, it hinges on these cardinal virtues, which have been uh, identified now for millennia. The cardinal virtues, namely, are prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. Now, I imagine that all of us could probably give a working definition of each one of those and give uh, maybe even some examples, use it in a sentence, maybe even give examples from your life in which ways uh, you try to be just in your actions. Over the next four weeks, what I want for us to do is to dive deeply in that and discover some of the ways that that applies uh, to our hearts, to the ways that we love and glorify God, but the ways also that we love and treat one another. So that is uh, where we are aimed. We're aimed at those four virtues, and they all go together in one way or the other. We're going to be discovering that together. The purpose of this, all of it, is to know what the end of virtue is. The end of virtue is the glorification of God and the love of one another's. So we actually have a reason to actually pursue these. First is to glorify God, and the other is to love one another. And you might know that uh, that is essentially an echo of the greatest commandment. It's something that we want to be about, want to be after here at City Church. And so you'll notice that it's actually needed right into the City Church's mission. If you don't know the mission by heart uh, at City Church, we've been seeking a revival of joyful worship by trusting God's Word to both make and grow disciples. That's what we're here to do, is to grow as disciples of Jesus in three ways, truth, hope, and steadfastness. Now, if we went back and revisited uh, 2 Peter, you're going to notice some of those words baked into it. So if you're asking, how does this connect in with what we are after here at City Church, the lines are very direct. It uses the actual same language. So what we're after at this uh, grow ministry, this opportunity, this rhythm to grow, actually connects directly into the City Church's mission. Now, every time that we begin, uh, especially something where we're not starting directly with a uh, passage that we're going to exposit, is to know what is it that we're after during this time. As we talk about virtues, there has to be a problem that we're trying to solve. Here's the best, uh, there, there are many ways that I think that this applies, but this is the best way that I can put it. In modern America, atomized, that means like literal, atom, so we're all pulverized into this fine power of individuality. Atomized and untethered individuals have created a culture in which values, ethics, morality, will, and actions are completely disconnected from anything other than our personal desires. So if you want to go ask somebody about their morality, if you want to go ask somebody about what is right and wrong, you're likely to hear people talking about what they personally think about a specific topic or about the world in general. This unmoored existence, this untethered existence, has left us looking to glorify our small g gods in a way that seems right to us in the moment. It could change at any other moment, but that seems right to us now. And then leaves us unable to truly love one another 
in any way that is not inherently self-referential, because we're always going to be going back to referring what we think, not self-reliant or self-glorifying. So that's the problem, as concisely as I can put it, is we're living in this postmodern world as postmodern human beings and believing that everything is relative to what we think, what we desire at any one moment. So that's a problem. It's not the only problem, but it's uh, a problem. The solution is found in the gospel. Namely, it's this. If Jesus came to perfectly glorify the Father and perfectly love others, then his gospel ought to lead us, ought to teach us, and ought to unify us in the pursuit of a gospel life, a good life. We ought to see our Savior his perfect living example in the scriptures, his sacrificial death, and his resurrected life, the virtues of being wholly human, to be the kind of holy creature intended in creation before the fall, recreated in his image through the gospel, and that he intends to live with in unity for all of eternity. So virtues are really, really important. They're actually taking a look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and asking, what kind of life is demanded of me in this life, death, and life of Jesus? And then being brought into that, being taken up in it, actually being elevated to the good life, the gospel life. That's the solution to it. So how do we want to make application there? Those who want to glorify God can take notice of these cardinal virtues as millennia-old signposts to Christ-likeness. Those who want thriving friendships, those who want thriving marriages and thriving families in which to raise children, those who want to give the best of Christ and give the best of themselves to other people in their lives need look no further than an adventure towards an increasingly virtuous life. One author that I read called this the art of living. The art of living. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. That's uh, not just the solution, but that's how we're going to be trying to make an application here. Now, you might be asking, hey, why have I been in church all of this time? Why have I been studying these things and not really heard all that much about the cardinal virtues? And here's, I want to provide a context for that. It seems easy to become complacent in our sanctification. It's easy to become prideful and think that we've reached the apex of our theology. We know all that we needed to learn about God and man and all the doctrines of the faith. One could think that they have realized everything that they needed to this side of heaven theologically, thinking that the rest of life was simply walking out the things that we already know. No need to learn anything more. No new categories to explore. Thus far is good enough. Virtue, then, is a new field to consider and explore. So if you're like me, I I really had not ever explored these virtues at all prior to uh, just a few months ago. And what I discovered is, is that my prideful arrogance, thinking at different times along my life, well, I've really just... I've concreted my theology. I know what I believe about these things. No, no additional uh, realms of exploration. No need to uh, include anything else as a part of my being. I've arrived. Well, here, what I want you to hear, if you're like me and have thought that pridefully, this is a new playground on which to play. This is a new mountain to climb. This is a new idea to uh, take in and to uh, really test the spirits in. It's an exciting thing. 
However, it is important to realize where virtues flow from. They can be found distinctly in Scripture. You can go and find the word prudence used in Scripture. You can go look at times and examples of fortitude in Scripture. And so I don't want to overstep that. You can go and do a systematic theology of it. But what we need to know and understand is that virtues are neither a beginning nor an end. Rather, we start in creation with a creator that designed us and designed us with a purpose in mind. So we don't start with virtues. That's what the world does. The world says, uh, I want to be a good type of person, and then that's the end, that's the aim, and that's where they started. That's where many self-help books start. Rather, we as Christians start in creation, where God actually literally created us. And if he created us, then he created us with a purpose in mind. No room for relativism here. Our Creator has rightfully revealed to us the way that life works best. Sin steps into this and obscures that purpose for creatures like us, so we can't be surprised when there's so much discord, when there's so much obfuscation of what this life is really for and how, if it's even possible to tell, things work best. Thus, there is both a need for redemption which is ours in Christ, and also a need to align our sinful, disordered lives with our Creator and our Redeemer's commands. We genuinely must decide whether or not our Creator can place demands on our lives and whether we will delightfully and with delightful duty align our wills with His. Then, after that, there are other works of the Spirit in His people. So even before you get to virtue, there is things like love and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. There's things like this that the Spirit is naturally wringing out in people's lives, actually bringing to fruition. There's things also that we see commanded in Scripture for humility and generosity and gladness and the like. Only then do we come to virtue. And I want to use a description of this that I haven't found anywhere else, but personally it it resonated with me, and that is metallurgy. Okay, metallurgy is that practice of taking one metal and working it in with another one. There are bronze ages and uh, copper ages and all of these sorts of things where there was metallurgy involved in making and creating useful and beautiful things. This is a lot like what I think that virtues are. Virtues are essentially like theologically applied ethics. A helpful way of this is seeing virtues flow out of a theology of God, man, redemption, and sanctification. So if you will, we'll take the things that we see in Scripture as raw materials that are melted down, mixed together, and then shaped into good, firm habits of personal constitution like prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. So yes, you can study it. Uh, systematically or thematically in Scripture, but I think that more rightly we should see that there is this story of Scripture, there are these commands of a person, and what God is doing is just like bronze. It's taking uh, copper and mixing it with a few other metals, and then we're uh, fashioning a spear with which to have some fortitude, or we're having uh, jewelry or a crown with which to see prudence. These sorts of things can be fashioned out of the raw materials that we see in Scripture. So I want for a moment to have a quiet exercise, one that you do in your own mind. Uh, All ages are asked to, you know, uh, participate in this. I want to ask you, have you or can you think of a time recently where you faced a moral dilemma? 
Okay, not, not a moral problem, because uh, we all face problems. Uh, well, I, I pulled up to the post office today, I was just in and out, and they wanted me to pay two bucks for parking, and I just thought, well, I'm just gonna be in and out. That's not really a moral dilemma. It's a, it's a problem, you gotta kind of sort through it. There's a moral aspect to it, but I'm talking about something really morally deep. Do I share something that somebody shared with me in confidence, if it's in order to help that person with some degree of confidentiality around it. It's a, it's a moral dilemma. Can you think of a time recently where you faced a moral dilemma? Should I think about it and name it for a few moments? Now what I want to do is ask you, how did you face that? How did you come to terms with uh, the moral contours of the dilemma that you were facing? How did you uh, think about it? Did you reference yourself and just think, well, I think these kinds of things? Did you go to a trusted friend that gave you some maybe good advice? Or maybe it wasn't so good advice. Did you go to chicken soup for the soul to feel good about yourself no matter what you decided? Um, there's lots of ways that we can face moral dilemmas. What I want to do is actually point us towards Romans chapter 7, verses uh, 15 and 19. I'm going to summarize them here just uh, really briefly. And what I want to do here is encourage you in the midst of some of the mess here. Paul says this, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I, I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Here's the reason why I'm starting here. These moral things, these uh, questions of morality in our lives, this uh, thought of ethics, even the idea of venturing into virtues can immediately come to a place where we either find ourselves humiliated and thinking, man, I'm not, I don't think about these things at all, or prideful thinking, I've got this covered. And what I want us to see is Paul saying, Man, I face these kinds of things all the time, these internal struggles, things that I want to do and know are right, I don't do, things that I don't want to do, I do, and I agree that the law is good, and I'm held culpable and accountable for those kinds of things. What I want for this to do right from the get-go is produce a little bit of humility in us. If we approach the topic of virtue and approach it either in a completely humiliated way, there's no way that I could learn to be a virtuous person, you're wrong. Uh, Christ actually wants to produce godliness in you. If you uh, come to it thinking, I don't have anything to learn because I've already got all of this stuff handled, uh, you're wrong because God actually wants you to have some humility with which to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, face these things. So, in a sentence, the virtuous man and woman starts with moral and epistemological humility. Now, that word that I'm using there, I want you to grab it. I want you to hold on to it. I want you to remember it. Uh, epistemology is the study of how we know things. So it's just, how do you know what you know? And that is a really difficult question because many of us are told things all of our life, and then you get into your 30s and 40s and you discover, nobody knew that. I didn't know that. That's not even true. The study of how you know something is truly true to the bedrock, true, true to your bones, is actually a really difficult thing to do. And what I want for us to do at City Church is to start with some moral and epistemological humility. Uh, when the coronavirus uh, took the world you know, up and turned it upside down, um, there should have been a response uh, amongst all of us of humility. 
uh, knowing that we didn't know everything. Uh, even now, we have debates about what we knew, how we knew it, uh, whether or not to trust these kinds of scientists or whatever else. What we need to do is approach things that are very difficult with a certain amount of humility. We examine our desires. The virtuous person doesn't start with doing the right thing. They start with desiring the right things. Okay? It's actually very difficult to just do the right thing. In fact, I would make a uh, statement that if you want to do the right thing, you have to start by desiring the right thing. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Your fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So as we begin to talk about things like prudence, we need to start with the Lord. Do you love the Lord with your whole heart? If you don't, you're going to end up with the wrong kind of fortitude. You're going to have courage about the wrong kinds of things. If you start off looking for justice, for instance, justice is a very important thing to you. You're going to end up in a ditch on one side of the road desiring social justice that might stand opposed to God's justice. Or you might end up on the ditch on the other side of the road wanting law and order justice that might might actually forsake God's justice too. What we want to do is love the Lord with our whole hearts and then be uh, brought into accord with His will. When we love the Lord and when we desire Him, then we begin to desire the things that He desires. Sarya and I used to have a, a spiritual mentor in high school that uh, used to give advice that you probably even heard me uh, talk about before. That is uh, to love God and then do what you want. Now, this was a terrible uh, kind of advice to give high school kids, but it took me really, I mean, a decade, and I feel like I'm still discovering this, to know what he really meant. He was talking about sanctification. If you love the Lord with your whole heart, what is constantly happening is this process of sanctification, whereas as you understand his will, your will is being aligned to him, and so then you really truly can do what you want because your heart has been changed. If we get that love of the Lord first, then we truly can grow in wisdom and we can grow in, um, in these cardinal virtues in a way that honors and glorifies Him and then also works for the good of other people in our lives. Okay, so when our passions are properly trained, we desire what is truly good in life. Our desires are no longer the impediment to virtue. They actually assist us in the pursuit of what is good. Only then do we experience a deeper, a deeper interior freedom and the ability to give ourselves more to God than to the, peop uh, and to the people in our lives. So I want to uh, continue this exercise by asking another question for you. How does this virtuous person do what is good? If you weren't to have the answer sitting right next to it, are there some things that you would be looking for in that answer? If you saw a virtuous person seeking to do good, how would they do it? The answers uh, that we actually get out of some of the catechisms is this, consistently. So they do what is good consistently. They're not inconsistent in it. They do what is good easily. They do what is good promptly. They do what is good joyfully. Now, I, I'm no athlete, uh, clearly, uh, but the more that you exercise, I'm told, uh, the easier things are for you. 
The easier it is to be consistent in doing those things. The easier it is to uh, lift and face uh, stronger challenges for you. The easier it is to uh, pop up and promptly go in to uh, work out or face a physical challenge. You can even, and this baffles my mind, uh, learn to do it with joy in your hearts. That's what we're after. That's what the virtuous person, if a virtuous person uh, is gaining strength in virtue, they're doing it consistently, easily, promptly, and joyfully. So I want to ask you a question. What kind of person are you? As we talk about this virtuous person that we are called to be, do disordered desires make you inconsistent? Do they make you indecisive? Do they make you lethargic? Do they make you grumpy? If you know uh, people that would describe you in those ways, there may be some certain areas of virtue that you are being called to grow in. These answers are actually most evident in our relationships. First and foremost, as a Jesus follower. So when we ask the question, what kind of Jesus follower are you? Uh, we can go back to this and say, am I following Jesus consistently? Are there really sharp ebbs and flows in our relationship with Jesus? Am I um, easily receiving the commandments of Christ and then being aligned to those things? Am I, uh, when I hear uh, Jesus put a call on my life, am I doing what he asked me to do uh, promptly with uh, joy in my heart? Or do I have a tenuous relationship, uh, one that I come and go from? We also can think about these in terms of our uh, relationships with our spouses, parents, friends, co-workers. Are we consistent? Are we uh, easily uh, prompted to do what is right? Are we doing that in a way that is kind of immediate and joyful? We can tell those things most evidently in our relationships. The Bible consistently refers to the virtuous person as having found favor, both with the Lord and with men. Are you a person that garners that kind of favor? We see this when um, uh, the angel appears to Mary. Mary had found favor with God. She was a virtuous woman, not perfect, uh, you know, but had found favor with the Lord. When Joseph uh, chose to flee from uh, sexual temptation, he had found favor with Potiphar. He had uh, found favor then with uh, Pharaoh. Uh, virtuous people find favor. Are you finding favor both with the Lord and with men? Here are three keys to growing in virtue. First of all, we rely on grace. Now, this is a point that I want to make emphatically, uh, because as you begin to talk about virtue, it can start seeming like a lot of work, and it is. We'll actually talk about some of the tension there, because it does actually take some mindfulness, some thoughtfulness, and some hard work. But we begin with grace. The first key to growing in virtue is relying on grace. The second is learning about the virtues, having categories for them, uh, doing what we're doing now, reading good books. Uh, I'll have actually a, uh, a printout if you want some more information from an uh, article that was actually just written in this last week on prudence. Growing in these things and lear uh, involves learning about them because without the knowledge, it's very difficult to grow in them. Lastly, is living in relationship and being prompted to action within those relationships. We want to be uh, living in relationship and then acting in those relationships. So first, grace. 
In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we believe that? As we approach the topic of virtue, do we truly believe that we can do nothing without Christ? Satan and sin want us to believe that our good work can lead to a good life in the context of self-reliance. We can do it ourselves. We can bootstrap this. That's false. Grace is what we need to be relying on. But we cannot grow without knowledge. Second uh, Peter, we quoted it earlier, starting in verse, uh, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, uh, says this, to supplement uh, your faith with virtue. But then it goes on to say to supplement virtue with knowledge. It's very difficult, maybe even impossible, to actually grow in virtue without learning something about it. So seek out good re- uh, resources on virtue. Look for virtues uh, and anti-virtues in stories that you hear. If you see a good movie, I'll bet you anything that you can see uh, vices that are pitted against virtues. Recognizing those things is actually a discipline, and that helps you grow in the knowledge of it. So be studious. Next, I want you to live in relationship. Virtue abhors a relational vacuum. You can only truly grow in community. Relationship reveals our vices. Anybody who is married know this. Anybody who has had a deep friendship knows this. You can't live in relationship with someone without vices coming to the fore. And it gives ample opportunity for us to practice being virtuous. In fact, what I would say is is that relationships, if we'll allow it, allow for us to actually acknowledge and call out vices, as uncomfortable as it can be. A lot of us spend a lot of time almost disarming our marriages and our friendships from being able to call us out on things where we're acting not virtuously or in our vices. So this gives us an ample opportunity of doing that, and we can build a community that encourages Christ-likeness by celebrating it when we see it. That's the kind of community that I want at City Church. In the context of that relationship, there is also action. Uh, you can't be inactive in, um, uh, in relationships. Sawyer and I talk a lot about this in terms of conversation. Um, you know, there are introverts, there are extroverts. It's uh, really common to, uh, for an introvert to go out with an extrovert and to go to uh, get a drink or to lunch. And the extrovert will say, uh, here's a story. And that person, the introvert, will say, that's nice. And they say, uh, here's a question. And there will be a one-word answer. And it's, uh, it's not a reciprocal conversation that goes back and forth. We actually get to practice these things in community. We get to grow in virtue together. Those things that kind of come out in us within the context of community gives us opportunities to practice prudence and temperance, fortitude and justice, and all of them require action on our part. However, they do not make us righteous. You can work on being a virtuous person. You can actually give it a lot of your attention. You can learn about it. You can live in community. You can do all of these things, but it doesn't make you righteous because there is only one who makes you righteous, and that is Jesus. Practice does not make perfect. Only God does. So what is the, what is the vision for virtue at City Church? As we kind of turn our attention towards prudence, what is it that we want to do here over the next few weeks, over the next year? City Church hopes to be a place for uh, the Christ-exalting, image-bearing faithful to grow in the virtuous life. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, challenges uh, us to be imitators of Paul as he imitates Christ. 
a city community with exemplars of Jesus living in dependency on the Spirit, relationship with the Father, and virtuous community with one another would be an undeniable testimony of grace. Again, virtue is neither the beginning nor the end. However, a people of sin and vice steal glory from God, while those living graceful, dignified, virtuous lives reflect his glory to one another and to the world around them. That's the kind of place that we want to be, is the place where God's glory is given and his love is shared with one another. So I want to invite you over the next few weeks to heed the call seriously to examine your life and to help City Church build a place set apart to live grace-filled lives of prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. Your moral life plays a vital part in the lives of the loved ones around you, and helps us disciple the next generation of faithful believers into the good life with Jesus.